Welcome, everybody, to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network. Today is Friday, February 12th, 2016. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have our full complement of hosts today, Doug, Tiffany, Erica, Gabby, and Elliot. Welcome, guys. Hello. Hey, everybody. Hi. So we are, uh, today we're going to be talking about <clears throat> hype versus reality with the Zika virus, uh, as well as other viral threats uh, to public health safety. Um, we are constantly bombarded with new and even more scary threats to public health in the media. Um, but, you know, often the legitimacy of these threats is called into question, and then it turns out that it was basically the media freaking out. And so, as we know, the media does freak out from time to time. Um, but we were kind of wondering when we were planning this show, you know, it's, are there more uh, sinister motives behind the scenes? You know, are there things that we should be looking at here that we're being purposefully distracted from? Um, aside from the obvious, I think the, the obvious being, you know, like the, the chaos and unrest around the world, uh, pretty much whatever they can do to uh, distract from that. Uh, and, you know, U.S. foreign policy, in my opinion. But uh, anyway, today, that is not our topic. Our topic is uh, is viruses uh, and the, the threats around them and how they tie in with, uh, with the media. So specifically the Zika virus, and I'm sure that uh, our listeners have, have heard of this recently um, coming out of Brazil, um, that it has been, uh, you know, allegedly linked uh, to many cases of microcephaly, uh, which is infants uh, born with uh, malformed skulls um, and some really horrendous uh, birth defects. But there are other things uh, that are linked, you know, to that as well, the Zika virus. Um, <clears throat> and I just wonder, you know, for me, this is something that I, until this hit the news, I honestly hadn't hadn't even heard of the Zika virus before. You know, not, granted, I'm not like an immunologist or a researcher or anything, so I don't keep my ear to the ground regarding viruses per se. Um, but that that name hadn't crossed my radar before. And I don't know, did you guys have a, a similar experience, or had you heard of this, or what what was your historical experience with that? I hadn't heard anything at all about it. I thought that they had a good thing going with the Ebola virus. It just kind of fits. So they came up with something new, but I hadn't heard of the Zika virus at all. Yeah, brand new to me as well. Yeah, I know. When I first started, when it started hitting the headlines and stuff like that, I had to actually go and look it up and see what it was because I'd, I'd never heard of it before. Yeah. I was, we were hearing about Ebola, about dengue, about the chikungunya in South America, but the Zika was like, came like, Seemingly out of nowhere, it was like it was picked up and you know getting a lot of attention. Yeah, yeah well, it seems like it was, it was first observed like over sixty-nine years ago in monkeys in nineteen forty-seven. Uh, yeah, in the Zika forest of Uganda. So at least we know where it came from. The word, at least. Well, from what I've read, though, um, they a Rockefeller scientist discovered it in a, a monkey, but that was a, a lab monkey. It wasn't a monkey out in the wild. Mm-hmm. I don't Interesting. know how 100% true that is, but that's just what I read. 
Well, but the interesting it, if it was thing wild, about it is that the... Who knows how long ahead. it was out before 1947, because there's viruses have been around since man has been around, or maybe even before man has been around. So who knows how old yeah. it is, really? Yeah. yeah. Maybe, maybe it was without since the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Well, the interesting thing about it is that apparently the Zika virus has always been considered rather mundane. Like, it's not really that big a deal. People who get it kind of, you know get uh, some pretty minor symptoms uh, and they get over it, you know, within a week or so, uh, if I if I remember correctly. So it, it's really kind of, you know, it was never said before that it caused anything like birth defects. So it's kind of interesting that all of a sudden it's it's become this, this huge threat when before it was really very mundane. Yes, that's what, that was my impression when I read about the symptoms my first reaction was, okay, we should definitely not worry about that, you know. Yeah. flu, you know, could be much worse. And, uh, but nevertheless, we have Zika all over the media. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like it's kind of a cycle in the media, you know. Every, every so often they have to come up with some major disease scare that they have to spread throughout the headlines and everybody gets really freaked out about it. And then it just kind of, you know, wanes and, uh, and and nothing ever comes of it. I mean, we've seen this so many times with like SARS, swine flu, bird flu, like, you know, these, these huge scares come up, everybody runs out and gets themselves uh, immunized and then, and then you never hear anything of it. And of course, you know, you could, you could turn around and say, well, it's because everybody went out and got immunized, you know, it's, it, it, it uh, we, we stemmed the tide, but you know, realistically, like how realistic is that really, I guess? Yeah, I thought I would make it a whole season because the flu, they usually try to scare the pants off everybody with the flu every year, and I thought we were going to make it. And then they came up with Zika. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen a lot of flu hype around this, this year. I didn't, you know, usually I'm, I'm bombarded with ads on the subway and everybody's talking about it and all these different things. I, I haven't I haven't seen nearly the kind of uh, propaganda push that you usually see regarding the flu this year. So maybe Zika came just in time to kind of like recoup some of their losses. Still in the gaps. Yeah, last yeah. year we had a very bad flu season over the, well, at least here in Spain, it was really bad. It nearly collapsed the health system. But this year, I swear, there has been no cases, literally, you know, it's like it's gone, mm. you know. Sometimes you wonder what came first: the people hear all the hype, yeah. and then they catch the flu. <laughs> yeah, or they yeah. get the flu, and then the hype happens. <laughs> a good yeah. question. And we had a very rare winter weather this season. It is uh, unusually hot, at least here in in Spain. Yeah. Well, here in southern Ontario, Canada, it's been uh, really, really strange, like unseasonably warm most of the time. And then we'll have these crazy dips into these like really bitter sub-zero temperatures. That's what we're going through right now. And uh, yeah, I don't know. There hasn't been a lot of flu here, but uh, people are complaining about kind of a consistent, uh, persistent, I mean, uh, cough. Like something that seems to last like five weeks plus where people just can't seem to get rid of it. Um, so that that seems to be what's going around here. Yeah, and the yeah, whole uh, sinus congestion and sinus infection is big down here. 
Yeah. Yeah, that sounds that speaks to me like an atypical bacteria, like very similar to viruses. But here, mm. what I noticed in this area in Spain is that people are having allergies, very weird allergies for this mm. time of the year. And uh, yes, basically that. But um, I also wonder about other factors. Okay, so we nearly had no, uh, we had nearly no food, but we have the Zika virus, at least in South America. So where was all this hype, you know, brought up? What happened, you know, during that time that it appeared and right now, at least in South America, where it was born? And also the dengue fever outbreak. You know, they just, mm-hmm. Hawaii just, uh, the mayor of the Big Island just instituted a state of emergency because of the dengue. Huh. That's right. Hmm. And these are viruses that we always had, you know, and at least in South America, since I have memory, there's uh, there's always been dengue. And uh, it was always contained. You know, there was no crazy epidemic, right, like right now. So what are the signs of the times? Why are we having all these right now? Any speculations? I don't know, but I suspect it serves some kind of agenda. We have to look at who benefits all the time. And uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say the vaccine manufacturers are going to be the primary beneficiary Mm-hmm. any kind of virus hype. Yeah, it's interesting. It's almost like yeah. their business model. You know, you, the, a, a disease comes out, you scare the pants off the public, they all run out and get immunized, and that's that's how they make their money. And then when the, 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 you know, the disease epidemic doesn't actually amount to anything, oh, well, no big deal. We'll do it all again next year. Yeah. I mean, you could even go a little darker than that and say they they start the cycle by issuing a vaccine, yeah. which causes effects that can be then blamed, you know, on on a blown up virus, um, which then causes a, a scare and then allows them to make vaccines for something else, and the cycle continues. Yeah. Well, there's certainly evidence for that. Yeah, but there. I mean, even just uh, even just you know uh, you know just just from people that I encounter the number of people who, who get the flu who actually got the flu vaccine it's it's like it's like you know I, I meet people who have these horrendous flus and I'm like did you get the vaccine yeah oh well, yeah I got it it's probably not as bad as it would have been if I hadn't got the vaccine I'm like yeah maybe <laughs> <laughs> or just suppressing the immune system enough to actually catch the flu <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. yeah couple of scares like Ebola and SARS that didn't immediately result in a vaccine that came to market. So I don't think that's the whole story, but mm. I think with any kind of any of these virus scares, they're always a cover up for something else that's going on. Maybe we can get into some of that. Like what are they covering up? What are they calling Zika but it's really something else? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a good question. These remind, these remind well, me of a case I saw in the emergency room um, not too long ago. Uh, and it was a pregnant woman who had a vaccination. Uh, she was vaccinated uh, for tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis, the TVAP vaccine. 
and she was telling me that um, they absolutely insisted that she must have this vaccine, so she had it, and the same day or the day afterwards, the vaccine, she felt sick, was vomiting, you know, and uh, mm. and uh, she was very dizzy, and she said that she was being pregnant. She had been pregnant before, and she never had these reactions, you know, to towards her pregnancy before. So she thought it was the vaccine. So that made me curious and made me realize that this vaccine is being pushed in pregnant women since at least 2013, you know, 14, and the guidelines mm-hmm. were written up in 2012. And uh, a lot of pregnant women are vaccinated all around the world. I know Spain, you know, does it. And apparently South America and Brazil as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, there were cases. Oh, well, uh, well, there. Sorry, Tiff. I was just going to quote from this article that's on SOT. Uh, birth defects in Brazil is the cause of the Zika virus or the Tdap vaccine, uh, Tdap. And, uh, you know, it just says here, let's see. In late 2014, the Ministry of Health of Brazil announced the introduction of the Tdap vaccine, which is the one that Gabby mentioned, uh, for all pregnant women, specifically for pregnant women in that country, as a part of its routine vaccination program. Um, and that a, uh, a side effect of the Tdap vaccine um, was a deformity called microcephaly, which is what, you know, the Zika virus is being blamed for. So I, I just, you know, that's, that's a coincidence that's so blatant that it's just really hard to ignore that, you know, before this happens, a bunch of pregnant women are vaccinated with a vaccine whose side effect is microcephaly, and then a bunch of microcephaly occurs, uh, and, you know, lo and behold, it's, it's blamed on this crazy killer rainforest virus that's come out of Brazil, which has been around for decades, uh, has never been a threat before, um, but is now, you know, this, this big scary thing. I don't know, it just reeks to me of a, a cover-up of the side effects of the vaccine itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's highly coincidental. But I was uh, researching that before uh, late 2014 or sometime in 2014 in Brazil, it wasn't even mandatory for them to report cases of microcephaly. So there's no mm-hmm. knowing like how many cases of microcephaly were in Brazil before this whole Zika hype started. And John Rappaport, uh, he has a website called No More Fake News. He's been really on top of this. And uh, he reported that the uh, investigators, you know, they first came out with this number of 4,180 cases of microcephaly in Brazil, which has a population of 200 million people. So 4,180 cases is kind of like a drop in the bucket. But then they went back and looked at the numbers again, and they only confirmed that out of that 4,180, there was only 270 cases that were confirmed have microcephaly. And out of that 270, only six or 17 were confirmed to have the Zika virus. So we're talking about enormously, enormously small numbers, and yet we have this worldwide scare over something that's really nothing. (laughs) And then the calls not to have babies till 2018 or... Yeah. 
Yeah, there's yeah. all of these mandates now. Like women don't have a baby until 2018 at least, and then there's all these. Uh, there's this one organization. Uh, women on the waves, they have a ship that's out in international waters and they're offering abortions. Like women have to be less than nine weeks pregnant and the the ship is like in South American waters, international waters, and, you know, you can sign up for this and come onto this ship and get an abortion pill and have an abortion to protect yourself and your, protect your baby from getting microcephaly when there's really only six or 17 cases of Zika virus confirmed in microcephalic babies. Mm -hmm. Protect your baby by killing it. Yes. It also sounds like they just counted the cases of microcephaly and, um, and associated it with the virus, but there has always been microcephaly there, you know, even this year, you know, I started noticing more, (laughs) Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I noticed. Um, I saw a couple of patients with microcephaly. Or they are they are right now like eight years old, who had very very severe behavioral problems because it's not only microcephaly, like literally small head, but it's um new developmental problems. And these people are, you know, it can be they can be more aggressive because they have problems controlling their behavior. You know. It's, linked to the neural behavioral problems. So it's like everybody just noticed all these microcephaly cases going around, but it seems like they're always been there. There's 25,000 cases of microcephaly in the USA every single year, and yeah. none of those have been attributed to the Zika virus. And I've read some other research, like any kind of insult to the pregnant woman, to the fetus, while it's still gestating, can cause uh, birth defects. So it doesn't have to necessarily be Zika. It can be, you know, pesticides, some kind of toxin, an accident or anything like that can cause microcephalus. Yeah, at the University of Rochester Medical Center, they have like seven potential causes for microcephaly, genetic disorders, exposure to hazardous chemicals or substance, mercury poisoning, lack of proper vitamins and nutrients in the diet, interuterine infection, uh, prescription of illegal drug or alcohol consumption, and untreated phenolicaturnuria. <laughs> yeah, I never heard of that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it just really shows how irresponsible um, the, the the authorities behind this have been in the media for uh, putting forward this whole idea that the Zika virus is, is what's responsible. I mean, what was it, Tiff, six to 17 cases of uh, microcephaly yeah. where they actually... Six to 17, yeah. I couldn't find a definite number. I've seen both numbers thrown around. I, I had seen six, but I mean, even 17. I mean, you know, if you're going yeah. to blame uh, a virus for a cause, you know, before that ever comes out, you should have some sort of evidence. Like, you know, you should have a, a case where the vast majority, if not all, of the birth defects um, are coincide with um, detecting the virus, you know, and the idea that six 
out of 200 and some odd are, 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 are where you find both the, the birth defect and the virus. I mean, that's, it's like John Rappaport said in an interview, um, that is evidence that it is not the Zika virus, not that it is the Zika virus. So it, it just, it's yeah. so irresponsible. And now you've got women going out and getting abortions because of it. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is also also interesting that um, for the vaccination, the TBAP vaccine, um, there was a lot of concern about pertussis, you know, which is um, it's linked with neuro neurological syndrome. Like uh, we could speculate that a lot of current neurological syndromes that we never associate with pertussis could be actually pertussis. And mm-hmm. one of the complications of this vaccine is the uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome, which mm-hmm. is the paralysis, you know, that starts in your legs and goes upwards. And when it reaches your diaphragm, your muscle for breathing, uh, you have to be connected to a machine, you know, that's pretty severe, you know. And it's mm-hmm. typically a complication, you know, associated with vaccines. So that that is pretty interesting, so. Yeah. And it hasn't even been proven safe. You know, no, in the US not. it it was given out before the FDA even licensed it. You they know? didn't even test it on pregnant women. Yeah. Yeah, I mean they've they've only actually licensed it licensed it to be um to be given to individuals over ten or eleven years old. Um, so the CDC are essentially recommending to give it to pregnant women when it hasn't even been licensed to, to do so, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I think even in the vaccine insert, it says it should be given to pregnant women with caution. Yeah. Yeah. It says, at least on the CDC website, it is like mainstream government stuff, it says, for pertussis-containing vaccines, progressive or unstable neurological disorders, uncontrolled seizures, or progressive encephalopathy, which is the brain inflammation, um, has been established, you know, as complications for for pertussis-containing vaccines. So, why they would recommend this for pregnant women? We don't know. Well, it's also interesting that the whole Zika thing, it's, it's been um, said that it's actually spread by mosquitoes, um, similar, similar to the way that uh, dengue or um, malaria or those, those sorts of things, like the, the mosquito-borne illness. Um, and it's, it's really interesting that all this kind of coincides with the release of uh, genetically modified mosquitoes into the environment. Um, they've uh, come up with these genetically modified mosquitoes that um, the idea being that it, it causes a, um, I think they only they only modify the uh, the males, and then they kind of spread on this genetic modification that makes it so that the larva uh, don't um, what's the word they don't develop properly. So the idea is that they they release these genetically modified mosquitoes to uh, bring down the mosquito population, uh, and therefore curb all these mosquito-borne illnesses. And lo and behold, we have this huge uh, uptick in dengue fever, and the Zika virus all of a sudden is being spread by um, by mosquitoes. So mm-hmm. I would say offhand that that probably didn't work. Um, and despite the fact that <laughs> yes, they have, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Well, it's, it's funny too because they said that they had like a something like a ninety percent decrease in this in this mosquito population, yet it hasn't done anything to actually curb the disease, which is what they were after in the first place. And they're all patting themselves on the back because these mosquito populations are going down, yet you've got these these diseases going up. So it's just it it you know it it looks to be a complete and total disaster, although they're not spinning it that way. Yeah, that's well, a very thing is. Uh, the the mosquito, the Aedes aegypti mosquito, the, the mm-hmm. same mosquito that spreads uh, dengue, chikungunya, and Zika, yeah. it's all caused by the same mosquito. So if those mosquitoes are dying out, I've read that there's, you know, if one species dies out, then another species is going to move in and take its place. So there's a tiger mosquito now, and they said that this mosquito breeds even faster than the 80s Egypti mosquito that spreads Zika. So mm-hmm. they just totally yeah. unbalance the ecological balance <laughs> of the mosquito. Yeah, exactly. They just made it worse because the Aedes aegypti mosquito, it was only found in South America, and that's about it. But the tiger mosquito, you know, it's even found in Europe, you know. It's here, you know, in Spain at least. <laughs> United States. But I think the mosquito is a really contributing factor because if we had people vaccinated um, against TDA, well, for TDAP all over the world, uh, and the hype is only South America, there seems to be a a link with these uh, newly bred mosquitoes. Yeah, that's interesting. Like, what do, what do you think, Gabby? Like, is there the, I, you know, it seems like there is some kind of link between the mosquitoes and the vaccine. What, like, what, what could possibly be going on there? Is there some kind of mutation or something like that happening? Yeah, there could be mutations just because, you know, these viral, you know, these vaccines, okay, uh, they're they're specifically linked with neurological syndromes, at least the complications uh, reported. And uh, one could speculate, you know, about the DNA changes happening, you know, in a pregnant women, the developing fetus, who are um, who uh, who are exposed to the vaccine, to the mosquitoes. It's like you know literally like a chemical factor, you know, like a chemical laboratory where several factors are being combined and, you know, we're just seeing the results of what is happening, you know. It's like mutations are happening very quickly. And uh, another contributing factor to the earth change is facilitating, you know, those mutations. Because Mm -hmm. at least for Lyme's disease, we are seeing like a lot of bugs and several species, like over 300, uh, being described just like in the last few years, you know, whereas like 20 years before, it was supposedly just a few of them, you know. It's just like Mm -hmm. we're living literally in very interesting times. Yeah, seriously. It's like a complete storm of all these different factors kind of coming in at once. You know, you've got... um, uh, you know, exposure to these these vaccines, which cause mutations. Then people are bit by these mosquitoes that are genetically modified. And uh, you know, and oh, I will say, you know, although they they uh, say that by only um, modifying the males, there isn't any risk for uh, humans actually being bitten 
but um, they actually, I was reading that there's actually a potential for about 15% of the mosquitoes that are being released to actually be female. So female genetically modified mosquitoes. So it's not a perfect system by any means. So if you have people who are getting these, these uh, undergoing these mutations from being exposed to the vaccine, then they're bit by genetically modified mosquitoes, which, you know, is a big, you know, black box. We have no idea what um, the effects from uh, a genetically modified mosquito, like, you know, they're messing around with their genetics. So that could uh, lead to more mutations. And when they get exposed to something, it could cause further mutations. And then they go by, bite somebody else and, and they're getting a complete unknown um, exposure there. So it's, it's, it's such a mess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And speaking of the uh, the GM mosquitoes, I have some notes somewhere, but I can't find it, so I'm just going to go off memory here. But um, when they raise, they infect or modify these male mosquitoes, and the male mosquitoes uh, mate with the females, and they have larvae, and those uh, larvae grow up to be mosquitoes and have a kill switch, allegedly that turns them off and make them die before they can, you know, replicate and continue to reproduce. But when they grow these GM mosquitoes, um, they use cat food to feed the larvae. And I read somewhere that um, tetracycline, which is an antibiotic that's used in um, food animals, that can kind of, change the effect of the GM and make it less effective, like some of these um, female mosquitoes might become GM just because uh, maybe they, uh, I don't know, some kind of, it kind of mutated and it can affect them. Um, so the GM males, the effect is not what they, they think it is because tetracycline can repress the kill switch gene in the larvae. Yeah. And tetracycline yeah. is found in the cat food that they feed these larvae. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And not also to mention in the, the environment. Yeah, I was just going to say that 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 there is that you know the idea that that tetracycline acts as this kill switch so that the the genetic mm -hmm. modification doesn't actually take. Um, you know, yeah. it, it, they, it's like they were depending on them not to be exposed to tetracycline. But there's so much tetracycline out there in the environment that there's a very good chance that at least a percentage of these mosquitoes will have access to tetracycline. So it's, the genetic modification actually won't even take in some of these. So the idea that um, it, the, the, uh, the, they, they've had this safety precaution that they've only modified males, well, if those males are, are exposed to uh, tetracycline, which is rampant in the environment, then uh, suddenly that, that means you will have females because the breeding will take, there won't be this kill switch, and they'll pass on that genetically modified material to females as well. So That's what I was trying to say, Doug. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because tetracycline is, is, is something that they, uh, they feed to, to livestock. Um, so it ends up, in, and I read somewhere that it's only 75% absorbed, so the rest of it goes out in the feces, and you know. So basically, you have piles of tetracycline uh, spiked uh, animal waste in the environment, and of course, mosquitoes are going to get get exposure to that. So it is, you know. Again, I say, what a mess. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Right. Don't mess with Mother Nature because you don't know what you're doing. Well, yeah, and that's exactly it. I mean, all these experiments are done with such a level of, you know, egotism and and mm-hmm. hubris. You know, this idea that they can just mess with these things and, and it'll do exactly what they want it to do and there's um, no chance that uh, that anything will get out of control. I mean, they're messing with entire ecosystems here. Like, did anybody actually mm-hmm. study what happened to an ecosystem if you actually took out a mosquito population? Like, other species depend on those mosquitoes being there for their food source, particularly birds and other insects. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like, just on the face of it, the idea that you could mess with an ecosystem to such an extent and just have it do what you want it to do, like, all the, all the only consequence is going to be a decrease in dengue fever. I mean, what hubris. It's just mind-blowing. <laughs> So it makes me wonder what is the uh like so we have these you know viral threats which appear to not actually be threats. I mean yes some people are getting it um but it doesn't appear to actually be as bad as what is purported. Um and yet we have these uh you know genetically modified mosquitoes which could be mutating uh more harmful viruses. It makes me wonder, you know, what what kind of threats are out there that are not actually, you know, being focused on in the media? Because uh, I, I guess where my, my thoughts are going is on one hand, um, people are prone, you know, to, to freak out. Uh, Fear mongering is actually very easy to do. And uh, a lot of the media, while, you know, I, I think there's evidence and it's also my opinion that, uh, that a lot of the media is, is controlled you know, by corporate interests and, and by governments, um, that at the same time, people in the media are, are just people, you know, and they'll they'll freak out and they'll push a sensationalist story because it gets readers or it gets viewers and things like that. Um, <clears throat> so I guess what I'm saying is it makes me wonder if there were a real threat, uh, you know, something that was that was spreading rapidly, would that, do you think that would get into the media, do you know, do you think that that would be covered or do you think that that would be hidden in favor of these kind of hyped up sensationalist stories that, that appear to be, um, you know, distracting us from other things? Mm-hmm. For one, I can think about yeah. the effects of genetically modified products, Monsanto. The effect of Monsanto on the environment, I would expect that more all over the media. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the the problem is that, um, you know, these things come out and they're instantly spun, right? Like they get it, they get a spin on them. And um, unfortunately, although you're right, Jonathan, I mean, you know, most reporters are just human beings. Um, there's also kind of a, a criticism of the media right now that there's a lot of laziness that goes on and actual journalism is kind of at an all time low. I mean, people basically just kind of look at the uh, the Associated Press or, or Reuters or something like that and just kind of repeat the, the party line as far as that's concerned, and very little actual investigation tends to go on, except for, you know, outside of the mainstream media. You see a, a lot of it in the alternative media. But um, so I think that, you know, what, what has been set up is a pretty uh, efficient propaganda tool so that within the mainstream media, what you're really just getting is the official spin. Um, so I think that, you know, you've got all these gatekeepers 
um, in place to spin all these different things in ways that, uh, you know, is acceptable to the party line. Um, so if, if something did happen that was huge and, you know, it was maybe uh, Monsanto or, or any of these other, you know, the WHO, the CDC, you know, was actually responsible in some way, I think that you would get very little in the mainstream media that actually reflected that. What you would probably get is, is the official party line, and you'd have kind of on the sidelines all the alternative press going, no, wait a minute, take a look at this, and let's take a look at this, and these documents here, and kind of uh, giving a, a better – I mean, that's what you kind of see right now as far as Zika is concerned. I mean, if it wasn't for John Rappaport, who has been uh, investigating all of this kind of stuff, you, you know, you probably wouldn't have any – or not as many kind of voices in the alternative press saying, oh, wait a minute, is this really Zika? I mean, this kind of looks like a bunch of bullshit. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, I mean, it's 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 hard to say exactly what would happen, but um, but yeah, I think I think it would be very difficult to get the truth, and I mean that's just reflective of where we are right now. Mm-hmm. One of the things that caught my attention is like um, I didn't recall any image image of the Zika virus. Like all over the media, we have pictures of mosquitoes and microcephaly and, you know, fear-mongering, but an image specifically of the Zika virus, you know, an electromicroscopy mm-hmm. image. So I was searching for one, and it really took me quite a while until I found one, you know. And once mm-hmm. I saw it, it was like, that doesn't seem very scientific. Even for the Ebola mm-hmm. You know, we had like, you know, very definite pictures about it and it was spread around. But for the Zika, it was like nothing. Um, Mm. I'm going to post one of the images that I found, the only one that I found of a cat. So you guys can judge for yourself if you see the virus Mm. clearly or not. Yeah. It kind of goes back to our interview on the author of uh, Virus Mania, uh, whose name escapes me at the moment. But, uh, you know, in a lot, of, he talking about in a lot of cases where things are, ba- uh, you know, blamed on viruses, they don't even actually know that that's actually the case. You know, that the virus even exists. It's sort of theorized, um, and there's lots of, you know, again, John Rappaport has been quite critical of this. That the the tests out there to actually determine whether or not there is a virus are extremely flawed. Um, so I think a lot of times it's kind of like the virus gets blamed when really other other things are actually causing problems. Uh, one of the things that the uh, was talked about in that interview um, with the Virus Mania author uh, was the fact that uh, DDT was actually responsible for a lot of the, uh, the, 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 the problems that were circulating, but it got blamed on a virus. So, um, and I'm sorry, I don't remember the, the exact details on it, but uh, I, I think, you know, that can be drawn in parallel with what's going on with Zika right now as well because of the rampant uh, pesticide spraying that's going on in Brazil right now. Um, there's a certain type of uh, uh, pesticide that actually uh, affects the larva of mosquitoes. And uh, it's even been added to the drinking water there. Um, and it's just... Yeah, it, 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 so it, it's so easy to kind of blame uh, a virus when all these other factors just get ignored. Yeah, I mean, I think that that particular well, there is there is a particular insecticide that's called pyriproxifen, and mm-hmm. um, that that's leading people to 
speculate whether actually this is one of the main causes um, for the sort of symptoms of microcephaly and the, the upsurge in cases that have been seen because it was only like um, it was increased the, the amount that they used to add to the water um, they increased it by a lot um, I think like 18 months ago it says here in the article and mm. um, and so all of a sudden you've got you've got these cases of people being born with microcephaly, whereas um, you know it, it strongly correlates with the fact that they're adding this pesticide to the water and they've increased the dose, uh, you know, relatively recently. Yeah, it's like the virus becomes a scapegoat, you know. Kind of like nobody wants to look at the the detrimental effects of what they're actually doing in the environment, so they just blame it on a virus. Yeah. And you have to consider that um, these parts of Brazil that they're talking about, where this is breaking out, there's a lot of severe poverty, mission, lack of basic So people are going to get sick, and that kind of you down and make it. People sick and the brick of illness, would they have a religious thing like the type of it all to death? Mm-hmm. We're cutting a little, uh, Tiffany. Can you read it? Yeah, you're, yeah, you're, you're cutting out a little bit. I wonder if you could try saying that again. Uh, I don't think that a lot of people take into account the poverty, uh, malnutrition, and lack of sanitation that's prevalent in Brazil. They kind of still what Jonathan was saying earlier about like real illness right now. People getting something and were covered up and instead something like a. Yeah, you're cutting out again, too. Yeah. But uh, I think I, I think what you're saying is that the uh, the rampant poverty maybe uh, might be a factor mm-hmm. in this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lack of sanitation, um, all those sorts of things. I mean, that that is uh, a breeding ground for illness, absolutely. And Jonathan, weren't you saying something mm-hmm. um, when we were doing our prep call for this about a dam breaking in uh, in Brazil? Yeah, there was. Uh, let me pull that up. Um, just recently, there was a uh, a dam uh, that broke in Brazil and flooded uh, quite a uh, let's see here quite a, a few acres, uh, and the devastation is just awful. There's actually a lawsuit going on right now against the uh, the company uh, that ran the dam, um, but. You know, the people have many people have been displaced from their homes, and uh, this this inhabited area is essentially, um, you know, just covered in mud, uh, and it's a breeding ground uh, for viruses and bacteria, um, and uh, it's also a lot of the water has been contaminated by uh, pesticides, heavy metals. Um, mm. some really nasty stuff. And so, you know, people around that area are getting sick. So I don't know if you'd necessarily call that a, a natural disaster, um, but at the same time, you know, it just contributes to the conditions where these things can, can fester and spread. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely yeah, rarely for hear that. that happens in the Say that again, Erica. Yeah, Tiff, we're, we're having you break up again. I wonder if you might try calling back in if you can. I've done that a couple of times. Oh. Yeah, the connection is bad right now. Well, it's, uh, it's definitely a recipe more, for disaster. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if we could uh, shift gears slightly uh, and just talk about <clears throat> some of the uh, the kind of overblown reactions to these things that are happening. Um, because, of mm-hmm. course, you know, when people freak out, you know, uh, policies change, people do different things. And uh, um, just like we saw with um, and, and continue to see with terrorism and the increase of uh, airport security and the use of, like, um, X-ray scanners and that kind of thing, um, that uh, right now uh, airlines are spraying people in their planes with pesticides uh, in the plane cabin, uh, which is, mm-hmm. is pretty pretty shocking to me. But I remember when we were talking before the show, I forget who mentioned it, but somebody had mentioned that they've actually been doing this for quite a while uh, in planes mm-hmm. that, that fly to third world countries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember in the 90s, you know, going uh, from London to Costa Rica or vice versa. Uh, yes, it was a policy for British uh, for British airplanes to get sprayed with pesticides when they visit the third world, in quotes. Mm. Yeah, there was even and, a video uh, circulating online showing a, a stewardess walking down the aisle with spray cans of pesticides in her hands, like just spraying the entire plane while the passengers were sitting there. It's like, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. I remember being sprayed, you know. We were sitting there, and there was all this spray going around. I once corresponded with a pilot. You know, he was uh, researching on the ketogenic diet to see if he could heal his health problems. He was explaining to me that he strongly believed he had aerotoxic pilot syndrome. He was a pilot, yes. And that it was all this exposure against sprays throughout the years had literally like damaged the health, you know. And it was the first time I heard it back then, but now, yeah, mm. it does make much sense, you know. So there's actually a syndrome for pilots. Yes, I have pilot syndrome. Yeah. Jeez. And nobody's, uh, you know, correlated that to the the rampant spraying of airplanes. <laughs> <laughs> it is the, yeah. it is literally a recipe for disaster. We have natural factors, we have artificial factors, we have a, an impoverished uh, population, you know, poor dietary guidelines, uh, mm. vaccinated people, you know, and uh, it's like people literally thought they could get away with it, but it's like we have this big sign right now saying, like, no, this is the result of everything. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like interesting with, that – sorry, go ahead, Elliot. No, I was just going to say, like, with spraying insecticides and pesticides um, on the plane, I mean, you just think it's kind of like you just use your common sense and you think, okay, this is toxic to other living life forms, you know. Is, is this is this honestly not going to have any effect on me? 
You know, like so, somehow it's so hard for them to think that, it, you know, spraying these pesticides and these chemicals are only damaging to other other life, you know, like insects mm. and bugs and beetles and stuff. Somehow, you know, it's like preposterous to consider that perhaps they may have a really negative effect on us as well. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, it just doesn't really make a lot of sense. No, I totally agree. It's like it, the, the whole thing with putting that uh, that pesticide into the water supply to, um, you know, the idea that, oh, it'll it'll affect the mosquitoes, but all of the all the human beings who are drinking the water, it'll have no effect whatsoever. It, it's just, <laughs> you know, come on. Like, you know, who made that decision? That's that that's what blows my mind. Like who is making the decisions that yes, you know, let's uh let's add pesticides to the water, let's spray uh our passengers with uh pesticides. It's it's like yeah. It it, it just kinda of, kinda of boggles the mind that that could actually be considered a good decision. I mean the question is, like, do these people who make those decisions, like, do they genuinely believe that, that it doesn't have any effect, or do they just not care? Yeah, that's a good question. That's a very good question. Yeah. I wonder. <laughs> yeah, that, that makes yeah. me think it's a good question, Elliot, like that there's a, a certain level of uh, ignorance there. I mean, I don't think that, you know, I, I guess I would, despite my disdain for the, the term, I would call myself a, a conspiracy theorist. You know, but I, I don't <laughs> think a lot of it is theory per se. Um, but you could label me that if you wanted to. Uh, but you know that that there are people with malintent out there, but there are also a lot of people who just have a certain level of uh, uh, ignorance and perhaps a lack of motivation or just a lack of that, um, you know, that that drive uh, to to find out the full truth about what they're doing. You know, like. Um, executives at, at very large processed food companies, you know, are, are probably, I, I would imagine if you've got a few of them in the room, um, you know, would say that, well, we're feeding a lot of people at a really affordable price, and so we're doing a good thing. Uh, you know, and if you it pointed out that their, the food, quote-unquote, that they distribute is actually poisonous um, and contributes to disease and a lack of immune system, um you know that they they would either not know about that or that they would just be in such denial you know that it that it wouldn't uh be a factor so same thing with uh with doctors too you know I think that a lot of the doctors actually have a good intent um but they're so indoctrinated by the process that they went through in in medical school um that they don't mm-hmm. see or they block out the negative effects of the treatments and the drugs that they're giving to people. And, um, you know, to them, they're doing good work. Um, but, you know, the negative side of it doesn't occur in their minds. So it, yeah. It's strange. Uh, it's like a cognitive dissonance kind of thing. Yeah. I definitely think that's going on. But I, it, it, I think that in a lot of cases, it's, it's uh, the decisions at the top are kind of financially motivated and not much else is taken into consideration. You know, we've got, uh, you know, a thousand barrels of this pesticide um, but just spraying it isn't isn't kind of you know keeping the wheels moving enough. So what else can we do with this? Oh, let's put it into the water. You know, it, it kind of makes me think of the uh, the whole fluoride thing, where it's like, oh, we've got all this waste product um, fluoride that's going to be very expensive to get rid of. 
oh, why don't we put it into the water supply? Yeah, you know, fluoride, it's good for teeth, so uh, we, better, we better spike these water supplies. And, you know, it, it, it trickles down, and then you've got all these dentists who are actually supporting the idea of putting fluoride into the water when really it was a financial decision at the top. And, you know, you, you, you're right, Jonathan. I mean, a lot of these might be actually well-meaning dentists who just are completely misinformed and are like, yes, you know, it's absolutely vital that we fluoridate the water. Um, and, you know, the, the same kind of thing can be said for the, the putting of the pesticides in the water. It's absolutely vital that we do this when really it was a financially backed decision at the very, at the very top. And, you know, very little consideration was given to what the detrimental effects might actually be. It's a huge problem that medical doctors are mostly unaware of environmental toxicity because, you know, you combine that ignorance with their, in quotes, good intentions because it really, for the most part, I see that the fear-mongering and the vaccination program, it really works on people. Like, uh, they're really scared. They want to protect the woman, the child children, you know, and um, they encourage them this vaccination program because they literally think it will make a difference. So if only they will be aware of environmental toxicity and how the ingredients in the vaccine can spell disaster for people, you know, they will be more, they will, be, they will have more critical thinking and there will be more uh, preventive measures, you know. I even, you know, on debates, I even mentioned, you know, Yes, but, uh, okay, so we have this pertussis vaccine because the pertussis problem is getting out of hand, and, uh, but it's been proven that it doesn't make any difference. You know, you vaccinate the, the woman, the pregnant woman, and they still will get the disease, you know, and also the children, mm -hmm. you know. So right there they start thinking, okay, so, yeah, so what do we do then? <laughs> How about getting information <laughs> about all these other factors, you know, going around? Yeah. And I'm always surprised, for example, once in the emergency room, I saw a person with um, glyphosate toxicity. He was uh, the pesticide from, uh, from Monsanto, you know. He had an accident and he got overexposed. And my surprise was to see how nobody in these tabs knew what it was. You know, they didn't know what it was. It's like, yeah, glyphosate, Monsanto, hello. <laughs> <laughs> So shocked that I thought immediately, okay, we need like an awareness campaign, you know, in medical yeah. schools about what this stuff really is. <laughs> hey guys, yeah. I guess. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, we can hear you. Yeah, we can uh, hear. You. Okay, so we called back in on our phone, but that's funny mm -hmm. how you mentioned how people are just so ignorant. Like Brazil's health minister, uh, I think they're going to send out over two hundred thousand troops to distribute, spray pesticides to over 400,000 pregnant women in Brazil. Huh. Oh, it's about ignorance and just making a bad situation worse. Yeah. Oh, well, it just goes to show that if you don't have all of the information, um, how easy it is to make the wrong decisions mm -hmm. and to, to make these mandates that just make the problem all the, more, like, all the worse. You know, it's it's like it's this kind of like segmenting of information um, and, you know, doctors like what you were talking about, Gabby, it's like doctors are kind of in their bubble. You know, they 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 know what they were taught in medical school. They know kind of what their other the other doctors are talking about and very little outside information is actually coming in. So there's very few people within those bubbles who actually have more information 
um, about the bigger picture. So it's like as long as you're working within your bubble, you're only going to come up with a limited number of solutions to any of these problems. Um, and I think a lot of that is done deliberately. You know, it's like you know, don't give people the big picture. Give them only keep keep them in each each person segregated in their little bubble so that uh, they they can't kind of see the the bigger picture of what's going on and and maybe come up with uh, ideas that are a little bit more outside of the box. So it seems that you know if this ignorance is not corrected, you know, it's going to get much worse. Like the world is going to have a huge input of information <laughs> on unexpected ways, you know, in order to, you know, realize what is really going on. And that's a sad thing because a lot of these health ministers and doctors and all that think that they're being really proactive and they're really on top of, like, the latest developments. And meanwhile, they're spending all this energy going in the exact wrong direction. So just because of that, I think this is going to get much worse. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it would be interesting if uh, you could get this information to people in the right places, but there's such a resistance. You know, it's like the the, the labels of things like conspiracy theory and, you know, it just there's, there's so much resistance to actually taking on any new information and, and, and looking outside of, of established norms for solutions. It's, it's, I, I think you're right, Gabby. Things are just going to get a lot worse. I guess we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it seems like, I mean, that's a, uh, that's symptomatic of all of, you know, modern history is that it's kind of how things have gone down. There's like, there's the, the people with malintent who are either, <clears throat> you know, purposefully harming people, of which I think that that percentage is probably quite few, but the damage that they do is extraordinary. Um, and then there's the people who may not necessarily have malintent, but they're self-serving, and so they're after profit. So they're like, well, I don't want to kill 100,000 people, but if it makes me rich, then sure. You know, and yeah. then that, you know, then the, the profit motive carries that even further. And then you have uh, people who are indoctrinated, um, who, you know, hold on to a certain belief, and so they get pulled into, you know, whatever that might be, whether it's food distribution, uh, medicine, vaccines, pesticides, um, and they then kind of, they're like the uh, the current that propels that along, you know, so that they, the, the people at the top kind of rely on the people that have been indoctrinated uh, to propel these things forward. And then you end up mm. with, the, you know, cascading um you know, just like an avalanche of uh, of negative outcomes, and that that seems mm -hmm. to be what continues happening. It's like we can't, as a collective, we we can't like, you know, get a handle on this uh, for some reason. And it, uh, I just, I'm not entirely sure. I'm sure there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, I would imagine that <clears throat> the major reason is probably just the uh, the the lack of motivation and and to, uh, you know, to invest the energy it takes to turn things around. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, that's a, sad, that's a sad commentary on where we are. Yeah. I mean, it kind of gets back to um, the, the whole political ponderology thing, too. 
uh, Andre Lobachowski's uh, book, Political Ponderology, where he talks about that phenomenon that you're talking about right now, Jonathan, the, the idea that he calls polarization, where it's like the, uh, the people at the top of the pyramid who have no conscience, um, you know, that, that um, mindset kind of trickles down into uh, the rest of society. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like if you, if you aren't aware of this, you know, most people, like most humans, tend to think of other humans as being like them, having the same sort of concerns. You know, nobody wants to actually hurt anybody. Nobody actually wants war. Um, so it, it kind of it, it makes it difficult. It's like a hurdle to get over um, that the, the, this idea that there might be people who are only out for themselves and that, uh, you know, by people at the top of the pyramid who are kind of making these decisions for themselves, it will have all these detrimental consequences in the, the, the greater society. So um, I think, you know, I, I think that's one of the major hurdles that, uh, that we as a society kind of need to get over. The idea that there are, you know, it's what uh, Robert Hare called the, uh, the interspecies predator. You know, this idea that there are, a, there is a segment of the population that, that is, is somebody you definitely don't want to be emulating. Um, and that that has consequences. So, um, you know, you see that in the, in the financial world. Uh, you see it, I mean, you see it everywhere. So, uh, yeah, I think, I think that's kind of, like I said, one of the major hurdles that people need to get over um, to this idea that, um, you know, maybe you need to look at the bigger picture to be able to see what the consequences are of the actions that are kind of coming down the pipe. Yeah, but but the main way that the people are going to get over that hurdle is um, by things getting a lot worse. I think, um, mm. and that that that's 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 kind of like the um, you know that's the sad truth of it. I think to some extent it needs to get so bad that people are almost shocked. You know, they get this shock and they're actually um, uh, um it's like the driving factor to motivate them to actually um to do something about it but i think as as um where we are now um i i'm not sure how how bad it actually can get you know whether it could get any worse than how it is now but yeah, yeah. i mean i i i i'd agree with gabby in that it probably will um just gradually continually just you know start to degrade even further it's almost like we need a complete system collapse before people can kind of wake up and realize what's going on around them. <laughs> it might have yeah. to come to the point where mandatory vaccines are forced and people can see with their own eyes just people dropping dead or getting sick after taking the vaccine and then maybe they will wake up to the horror around them that's coming from the medical industrial cartel. Mm. Mm-hmm. Just in that mm-hmm. one area, I mean, regardless of all the other areas that they need to be shocked on. Well, it's funny. We've already, in the financial sector, we've already had several major shocks, mm-hmm. and it doesn't really seem to have done anything, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe we have to see a complete and total currency collapse before people will actually be like, wait a minute, this system actually is broken. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, we were uh, we were having some problems with Blog Talk Radio uh, when we started the show. We weren't able to upload audio clips. Uh, we've been having problems with that all morning. But 
good news that they appear to have fixed it while we were on the air here. So I do have some clips to play. Um, <clears throat> we've been talking about this John Rappaport interview with uh, Corbett um, on the Corbett Report. I don't know if our listeners are familiar with that uh, podcast at all, but the Corbett Report has been a long-running kind of alternative news uh, show, and he covers a lot of really interesting topics. And John Rappaport is an uh, investigative journalist. And so <clears throat> he just recently did an interview with Corbett about the Zika scare. And so we have a couple clips from that. This first one is um, about the, uh, the numbers, you know, the specific numbers. And Tiffany had cited these numbers earlier uh, as well. But let's just uh, let's play this, and then we'll come back and discuss it. Let's break this down for people. Let's get down to brass tacks. We are told there are 4,000-some-odd cases of this microcephaly, this, these, this neurological disorder that these babies uh, are being born with in Brazil right now. We're being told that there's a connection to Zika. We're being told that this is now spreading around the world. What do we actually know? What are the, what are the actual numbers on this? Okay. So I have the latest numbers. Yes. Uh, initially, it started with uh, 4,100 and change, whatever. And these were said to be cases of microcephaly, which means babies born with smaller heads, brain impairment, brain damage from the entire country of Brazil. This is what we were told. And all of a sudden, it emerged out of nowhere, this report, as well as and the cause is the Zika virus. Okay. Now, the latest is this. The Brazilian researchers have, so to speak, gone back into their work, and now they're really looking at it. And now they are saying that they have confirmed 404 cases of microcephaly in the whole country of Brazil, down from 4,000. But of those 404, you know, it could be, and, and, and they're saying this, some other kind of central nervous system impairment. So even that figure is dubious. But let's accept it, 404 cases of microcephaly in Brazil. Then they are saying that of those 404, they have found, quote, a relationship to the Zika virus in 17 cases. So what we have here is nothing. In other words, there was no reason to hype this as an epidemic in the first place because of the numbers of cases. And there is no connection to the Zika virus because people have to understand, if you as a researcher are going to say this virus causes that condition and you are looking at live babies, cases, you should be able to find the virus in the overwhelming majority of those cases, if not all of them, in order to say, this virus causes that condition. So they are saying 17 cases out of 404. That, in fact, is counter evidence. That is evidence that the virus is not causing this condition. And if you read the literature, the conventional medical literature on microcephaly, it's very clear that any insult to the fetal developing brain in pregnancy can cause microcephaly. 
that would be, say, a blow to the head, a blow to the stomach, a woman falls downstairs, exposed to a toxic pesticide or a street drug or any, you know, any insult. And so, therefore, this is wide open. And not only that, <clears throat> but the literature is also very clear that every year in the United States, there are 25,000 cases of microcephaly. So, wait a minute, you know. We're comparing here year after year, 25,000 in the U.S., nobody raises a peep. Now we're looking at 404 probable cases of microcephaly in Brazil with a population of 200 million. No connection to the virus. And we're told this is a worldwide epidemic. A million cases, we're going to see 3 million. And I'll add just one more thing here for my opening shot. When they say we are predicting all these millions of cases, you see, what they're simply saying is that the Zika virus could be detected by, say, an antibody test or some other test in people all over the world. Well, the virus was discovered in 1947. It could have existed on this planet for 100,000 years. Who knows? Gone around the planet a dozen times, a thousand times, a million times, could be everywhere, Typically, and you see this again in literature, never been considered significant, causes mild illness with few symptoms, no treatment. You just kind of grind it out for a few days and you're fine. So to say, oh, look, you know, this is going to be incredible with all these cases of Zika, that is completely deceptive because who cares? Because there's no connection that's been found even remotely to microcephaly. So let me just make sure I completely understand this. Of those 404 cases of confirmed microcephaly in, Br in Brazil since this outbreak supposedly started, only 17 of them, they've been able to confirm the, the presence of the virus in those victims? Yeah, that's a good question. You see, they, they are calling it a relationship to the virus. Now, the New York Times just published an article about this where now the Brazilian researchers are saying and this is really garbled, so don't expect it to make sense, that this number of 17 is really irrelevant because their tests would only find the Zika virus in a tiny proportion of cases. So what they're now seeming to be saying is, well, we don't really have the test to even find it and therefore don't even pay any attention to what we're saying. Uh, it could be a lot more. We don't know. Now, it's, you know, there are tests. There are a number of tests that you can do, including direct virus isolation, and you use a centrifuge. There is a test where you remove a tiny bit of tissue and you put it under a slide of electron microscope. There's all kinds of uh, tests, some good, some not good, but these Brazilian researchers seem to now be, to me, pleading ignorance because this is not turning out the way the story is supposed to. So there you have some interesting data about that. Um, it's it's nothing. <laughs> it's really it's really nothing. <laughs> Just remind me the interview about mayor, virus mania not too long ago here in the Health and Wellness Show, and how he was telling us that, you know, these viral tests 
are so unreliable. God knows what they're measuring, really. <laughs> Yeah, it just brings the yeah. point home of that the virus ends up being a, a scapegoat, you know, that they don't actually, I mean, it looks like there's not even really a, a problem worth reporting on here. But uh, if there was actually a, a problem, the idea that the, that the virus is responsible is so tenuous, you know. Um, it, 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 again, it's just, it's all, it seems like it's just a case of media hype and nothing much else. Yeah. And, you know, with this specific case, I, I would tend to, to think that it, it goes more along the lines of uh, covering up the effects of the vaccines and the pesticides. Um, you know, <clears throat> but even then, and I hate to say this because from a compassionate viewpoint, you know, four, 400 cases of microcephaly is, is too many. Um, mm -hmm. 25,000 cases in the United States is way too many. <laughs> and mm -hmm. that, you know, that would be something I think worth investigating. You know, why, why are babies in the United States being born with, with malformed skulls? I'm sure that we could, you know, give us five minutes and we could come up with, you know, 20 possible causes that are, that are all pretty close. Um, you know, given the, the toxins that are in the food, in the environmental uh, systems, um, you know, in our water, um, EMF pollution, all number of things that, that drastically affect uh, fetuses while they're in development. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's why I say I don't want to make light of 400 cases because even that is too many. Um, but, you know, calling it a, uh, uh, an epidemic of any kind is, is definitely fear-mongering and, and trying to distract from something else. Or, you know, maybe the media just needs something to freak out about. And I, I can't fathom the, the cause of that because with all of the injustice going on around the planet and the really actual worthwhile journalistic stories that are occurring right now that people need to be hearing about, you know, why, why do they need to like scrape the bottom of the barrel for something to flip out about? Hmm. Well, one clue might be that, uh, you know, there's a, an article up on uh, SOT right now about uh, drug racer, uh, sorry, Drug makers racing to develop Zika vaccines despite little knowledge about the virus. And it says that there's 12 groups currently mm -hmm. working on a Zika vaccine. Um, and that, you know, the World Health Organization has established speedy regulatory pathways. Um, but that even so, it's still going to take a couple of years. So, you know, maybe that, that might be part of the, uh, of the overall picture here of why, why this is getting hyped so much. You know, these, these yeah. uh, drug companies obviously need something to work on, something to get funding for. Um, it's, it, I, I always come back to, I think it's just a big cash cow. Yeah, speedy regulatory pathways sounds like somebody's going to make a lot of money. Wow. Well, also considering that President Obama is going to ask Congress for more than $1.8 billion in emergency funding to fight the virus. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of money. <laughs> that reminds me of, uh, you know, the... Oh, sorry, go ahead, Kathy. No, I was just going to say that it seems to me that the world is getting polarized in the sense that we have all these people getting informed about environmental toxicities, the factors behind this epidemic, the fear-mongering, and other people just going through all the 
hysteria and just like, yeah, get some vaccination. This is classic problem, reaction, solution. So you come up with this this fake problem and have this over over exaggerated fear mongering reaction. And then the drug companies step in and say, oh, don't be afraid. You know, we have the solution right here. We're just going to come up with this vaccine, and everybody can be safe. Okay, mm-hmm. go back. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this also makes me think of the effect of, you know, uh, I'm sure everybody's familiar with the term, you know, viral uh, story, you know, like not mm-hmm. not as in actual physical viruses, but something spreads like a virus on the internet, you know, and if your thing goes viral, whatever it is, then you hit it big. Um, Mm -hmm. And that I I think is a really poignant metaphor for how these stories spread. They spread like a virus, you know, it's damaging Mm -hmm. to the overall organism, uh, you know, and it, uh, it, it spreads rapidly. It eats up energy, um, you know, and it ultimately uh, results in uh, sickness and, and illness. And that's that's what viral stories are essentially, you know. Yeah. Um, but it just it, it struck me as uh, is an apt name for that. And um, now we have a viral viral story. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I have another clip here from uh, from Rappaport's interview, um, which where he talks a little bit about the. Uh, the swine flu uh, scare of 2009. I don't know how many people remember that, um, you know, the specifics of it, but uh, there was, I was looking at that while we were talking earlier and uh, similar to Tiff, what you just said about Obama saying that, you know, we were going to set aside a bunch of money for the Zika virus. That Bush had also said that, um, that the swine flu was going to get, uh, now this is I think before 2009, but, he had claimed that 4 million Americans were going to die from the swine flu, which never happened. Huh. Um, you know, and of course that, that spurned uh, a bunch of research and funding for um, coming up with a swine flu vaccine, uh, which I would, I, you know, I am making an assumption here. I'll be clear about that, but I would assume that that actually ended up causing much more damage than the actual swine flu did. Um but here, Rappaport gives some some interesting numbers about the the swine flu. Um, so let's uh, check that out. We'll come back and discuss. Zika virus is not some brand new thing that sprang out of nowhere. This has been around for decades, and the symptoms of this have long been known and understood, and have never included microcephaly before, have they? Correct. Absolutely correct. So suddenly, we're being asked to believe, on the basis of no data whatsoever, that now it is suddenly causing this uh, this wave of neurological disorders. Very interesting. Well, let's relate this to the past, put it in the context of similar scares that we've seen, uh, even in just the past decade alone, uh, that seem to be playing out in a similar way. I know you've talked about Ebola, you've talked about SARS, you've talked about the swine flu, all of which seem to play out in a similar way. What are the differences and similarities between these stories? Quite similar, you know, quite similar. Virus not really implicated um, hype to the sky, threats of, you know, global decimation, and then the whole thing kind of fades out. And then there's usually an announcement, well, we were on the brink, but, you know, great public health service, uh, you know, really kept it from spreading around the globe. And then 
on to the next one. But, for example, in the case of swine flu, because this is how that played out in the United States. In the fall of 2009, Cheryl Atkinson, who was a star investigative reporter for CBS News at the time, since resigned, her computers were hacked at work and at home, and quite a story. She published a piece on the CBS News website, which indicated that in the summer of 2009, at supposedly the height of swine flu epidemic, the CDC stopped counting cases, period. How could this be? I mean, this is their main task, is to issue weekly reports on numbers of cases. And, indeed, the CDC was hyping this epidemic and the dangers to the sky, get the vaccine, all of that. So she found out what was really going on, and it was the overwhelming number of blood samples sent to labs from diagnosed swine flu patients or the most likely swine flu patients were coming back negative for swine flu, no trace of swine flu or any other kind of flu. So this was, I mean, talk about scandalous. Here was the CDC saying we've got a worldwide epidemic and there's just tens of thousands of cases in America and it's all horrendous. They had stopped counting and that's because no, you know, overwhelmingly, the blood samples showed absolutely no trace of swine flu or any other kind of flu. The article was published. Her editor told her that it was the most original article he had seen on swine flu. And then they tried to get it on the CBS Evening News, National News, which is the big time. And all of a sudden, it was shut down. And the whole story was shut down. And there was nothing more printed about it. Then my piece Three weeks later, as I've written, the CDC announces, deciding to double down, triple down, quadruple down, that in fact they estimate in the United States that there were 22 million cases of swine flu. (laughs) So, I mean, this is the length to which these people will go to continue to hype something that isn't even there. So I thought that was pretty incredible. 22 million cases. Mm, wow. You know, up from, yeah, it's, it's insane. That's, uh, you know, what, that's a little less than 10% of the population of the entire country. Just brings back memories of, um, of people taking tam- Tamiflu, because tam- Tamiflu was one of the main... Um, one of the main drugs that they um, that was brought out for the swine flu or supposed swine flu epidemic, and um, I just remember all of the adverse effects that people were getting from Tamiflu. I'm sure people were getting paralysed and all sorts. It was insane. There was so much um, like hype about it, and people were really panicking. Yeah. Well, it just yeah. really goes to show the, uh, the the power of the gatekeepers, right? So this this major story is about to break and all of a sudden it just gets shut down. And then right after that, it's like, Oh yeah, there's 22 million cases. It, it's like, you know, the, basically the, the, the story, which was showing that there was, you know, that the, the CDC had stopped counting cases, you know, that directly contradicts the, the next story that they were about to bring out to hype it even more. So it had to be shut down. Uh, it's it just, yeah, it's mind blowing. Yeah. 
It makes you wonder what kind of numbers they're going to come up with for the Zika virus. Mm. Yeah. It's going to take to die down. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is that they could actually be fairly honest about the the prevalence of Zika virus and where it's actually showing up because it is so prevalent already. But they but as long as they keep it hidden that the Zika virus actually has nothing to do with the microcephaly, it, yeah. you know, it, then then they can continue to hype it in that way. It's kind of clever, actually. Yeah. And it's like who ben who benefits from this, you know? Like how much money are how much money is it they're gonna make from um developing these vaccines? If they can if they can continue to propagate this um this idea and this hype about about Zika virus now, I mean, um how many people are gonna go, you know, are gonna run to their GPs, run to their doctors, getting asking for the um for the vaccine? You know, and it, mm-hmm. I guess it comes down to money, doesn't it? It's, it's yeah, financial mm-hmm. interest. Yeah, and then it also goes to show how much these, you know, how much big, big, big business can actually influence, um, you know, a public health. Yeah. Well, and also all the doubt that's growing over the whole vaccine agenda as a whole. Mm. So, so what? Another way to you know try and revive people's doubts about the vaccine because you know, we mm-hmm. see a lot coming out in the news with the Gardasil vaccine, HPV, and these, these states kind of lining up to do the mandatory vaccination programs. What a better way to kind of squash those fears that people have and squash the debate. Yeah, exactly. It's like they keep on injecting more and more fear in to counter the logic that might actually be getting through. Right. Yeah, well, fear is a good motivator, you know, and definitely yeah. a, a, a good revenue stream. Well, let's see here. We have, uh, while we're while we're on this roll, we have one more clip from uh, the Rappaport Corvette interview where he talks about um, the vaccines and the pesticides and their impact on the cases of microcephaly in Brazil. Uh, so let's hear this, and then we'll uh, be back to discuss after. Here's something that I find exceptionally interesting that I haven't really seen a lot of focus on is that in the official WHO announcement of the public health emergency that they've now declared uh, regarding this matter, uh, the official press release talks not only about microcephaly, which everyone is talking about, the neurological disorder, but Guillain-Barre, which as far as I know, isn't that primarily a vac- adverse vaccine reaction Type of syndrome? Why, why are we suddenly looking at Guillain-Barre as being related to the Zika virus? Uh, you know, I have no idea. But yes, the reason that that phrase, Guillain-Barre, became famous was because back in the 1976 swine flu scare, when the president of the United States decided that everybody had to be vaccinated, and then later they found out that the whole thing was just nonsense, that it wasn't swine flu at all, and uh, there were just very few cases anyway. Uh, you know, and the whole thing was just a, uh, just a fiasco and a disaster. There were people who received the vaccine and, you know, suffered from Guillain-Barre syndrome, and it was extremely serious. So that's where the public became aware of this. Now, I've looked at the literature. It seems like uh, they're saying it could, Guillain-Barre could 
developed for other reasons, but it certainly can be a, a vaccine reaction, no question about it. Well, that, again, is quite instructive because the 1976 swine flu vaccination program gone gone wrong, as if there was a way for it to go right, I suppose. Uh, 2009 swine flu scare, of course, generating a lot of vaccine-related profits. And in the outbreak of this uh, latest Zika craze, of course, what is the first reaction that we got uh, a couple of weeks ago was the U.S. is now scrambling to develop a new vaccine for Zika. Obviously, there is a profit motive here. Uh, We can speculate about whether that's connected directly to this or whether they're piggybacking on the hype. But at any rate, it seems like there's a direct relation between these types of events and the vaccine industry, isn't there? Sure. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's you go left and then you go right. I mean, it's a dance. First, you announce the gigantic epidemic and then you rush to develop the vaccine. I mean, it always follows that pattern. Now, they don't always come up with one. And there are statements that this may take much longer to develop a Zika vaccine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But no reason is ever given for that, you see. In some cases, it's like, well, it's a snap. We take the virus, we do this, and here's the vaccine. You know. In other cases, they say, oh, no, no, it's a difficult and so forth. But they don't say why. Uh, but you're sure the profit motive is definitely involved and we could speculate about a number of other things. But one of them, if you really want to get down to brass tacks, is Brazil is the largest user of pesticides in the world. Largest. And some of the pesticides that they use are banned in 22 other countries. So now we are talking about giant agri-farms. We're talking about Monsanto and Roundup. We're talking about atrazine. A very toxic pesticide, and I have found a study and uh, summarized it where there was a connection drawn between that pesticide and microcephaly. So, you know, I operate by this point, having been around the block so many times, the virus becomes the cover story. This is what we're putting out here, and it sells. I mean, it's the biggest selling cover story in the world, as far as I'm concerned. It works fantastically. People are afraid. They're scared. You can create fear with talk about a virus. So therefore, that obscures why people are actually getting sick and dying from whatever the condition is. And we can go into motives and who's doing it and why, but I mean, that is a pattern. It certainly is. And I think that's absolutely 100% something that we need to keep clear in our minds when we're looking at this, that that the possibility exists at any rate, even if all these people are angels descended from heaven to look over public health and make sure that we're all healthy, they could still just get it wrong and be using this as a cover for their own ineptitude um, at the very least. Another angle that I thought was particularly interesting that I know you've written about is the TDAP vaccine angle, uh, talking about how uh, as, as part of a public health campaign worrying about pertussis in young infants, The Brazilian Ministry of Health mandated in uh, late 2014 the introduction of the TDAP vaccine for all pregnant women in Brazil. And lo and behold, you know, nine months or so later, we start getting all of these uh, these reports of the, the microcephaly. So, you know, there you just have further 
confirmation of, you know, what, what we've been talking about, uh, that, you know, there's the profit motive. Hype up mm-hmm. the scare, get people freaked out, you get support for funding, and then, you know, a few people make a ton of money off of manufacturing this vaccine for something that didn't really even need it in the first place. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm convinced it's, it's actually part of their model, their profit model. Well, first we'll hype up this disease, and then we'll collect profits by uh, developing a vaccine, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it, it probably is in the actual like corporate plans that that's a model. I mm-hmm. think you're right about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's really important for people to keep this in mind the next time there's a scare, because there's been so many scares where people who are kind of on top of things, hopefully they don't fall for it every time a new scare comes out. But I hope that people are paying attention. And at the very beginning of a scare, just make sure you ask yourself, you know, is this really true? Are these numbers really true? How did they arrive at this information? You know, who's mm-hmm. providing this information, and should I believe it, or should I dig deeper? Mm-hmm. Those are very good points. Like, people should really question everything always, more often, you know, why, how, mm-hmm. when, you know, mm-hmm. why now? <laughs> always, you know, be critical, you know, don't just go with it. Yeah, yeah it, can be like a, it can be like a minefield. Um uh, every source that you go to says a different thing, and so there's so much information that's conflicting. It, you know, it can be very difficult for you know the average person to 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 make a decision on on what to do. But I guess for the listener, like, yeah, it, it, it's so important um, to do as much research as you can before getting drawn into these into these um, you know these scare and fear tactics. Fear tactics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's it's worthwhile to mention too how important it is to be prepared beforehand too. You know, if you're subsisting on the standard American diet and you're getting vaccinated regularly and you're toxic because of your whatever, your pesticide exposure, your uh um mercury amalgams in your mouth, like all these kinds of things, then you're you're much more susceptible to these things if they actually do exist. So it 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 you know, by part of being informed and utilizing knowledge is kind of getting yourself into a state where this kind of stuff doesn't affect you. And that, that includes being, you know, mentally as well. You know, if you are um, on a ketogenic diet and your brain is functioning a lot better, you're much less likely to fall for all this hype. Uh, you're much more likely to uh, actually dig into things a little bit more and really look at stuff. Um, but also your body will be more prepared to fend off any of these kinds of uh, things that come along, any of these uh, bacterial infections or, or uh, viral infections, you know, your body is just in a better state to deal with onslaughts. So, you know, part, part of, you, you know, you don't necessarily have to wait for the next big hyped up epidemic to come along to start taking action. You know, just living your life now with the knowledge that you have and continue to collect knowledge is protection in and of itself. Yep. That's a great point. Yeah, I mean, to, to some extent, I think we need to have faith in our immune system. You know, like um, we've evolved over how many years um, to deal with with these things, with these viruses, with these bacteria, with these pathogens. Um, and 
you know, it's such a, a recent phenomena that, you know, we we uh, we inject chemicals into our bloodstream, completely bypassing any um, sort of um, protective function that our body can, um, you know, utilize. Um, we've got no way of, of protecting against all of the other toxins that are in these vaccines. And it, it's kind of like getting back to basics, you know. It's like, okay, our body is built to deal with these things. So mm. if we can if, if we can find ways to, um, you know, to get back into or, or to get into a, a proper state of health, then we don't necessarily need to worry about, um, you know, about these viruses, blah, 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 blah. And I, I guess it comes back to what you were saying, Doug, like um, to, to, to act now to prepare your body to get it into the best state that it could be in. Um, mm -hmm. So that if something does come along that is that really is the real deal, um, you'll be in a better position to, to ward it off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And, and, and that's kind of fear mongering is, is part of the whole uh, program as well. You know, the idea that you can't have faith in your immune system and you need to be terrified and use antibacterial soaps and sprays and people not touching any railings, uh, you know, on, on staircases or um, don't hold on to the subway or wear gloves everywhere. All, all these kinds of uh, kind of ridiculous precautions that everybody's taking to try and minimize their exposure to these, these uh, flu viruses or cold viruses or whatever the case may be. It just, you know, it, it, it's just so ridiculous that this idea that, um, you know, that you can actually prevent exposure. I mean, if a, if a cold or flu virus is out there, you're getting exposed to it. It's as simple as that. It's just whether your own state of, of, of immunity is capable of dealing with it. Um, so, yeah, I just, I, I think it's so, uh, it, it's just a bunch of nonsense. I mean, I work in a health food store and I have people coming in with the flu all the time and I don't catch it. I, you know, I, I have faith in my immune system that I, I'm able to fight these things off. So, yeah, it, it just, it's part of the whole program that I, I think it's a good point, Elliot, that, you know, you, you, people don't have faith in their own innate immunity in their ability for their body to deal with these things and take uh, precautions that half the time end up making things worse. Yeah, we're an amalgam yep. amalgamation of all sorts of critters and viruses anyway, and it just depends yeah. on the of your body whether these things will manifest as illness or not. So. Mm -hmm. Don't fall for the scaremongering. I mean, how many of us have had acute illnesses and didn't get better? Very few. Yeah. Oh, I'd yeah. still be throwing up in my neighbor's lawn like I did when I was eight years old and had the flu. That would still be going on. <laughs> well... Good points overall. I think uh, <clears throat> that's pretty clear. I don't. I don't think I could say it much better than you said it, Doug. You know, just you need to be ready. And uh, if you're if you're aware and um, you have you know critical thinking and you take care of your body, then these things don't need to be um, the big scare that they are for a lot of people. So, mm -hmm. um, let's. Uh, we're coming to the end of our time here, so let's uh, let's go to Zoya's uh, pet health segment, uh, which we have for today. Um, it's about uh, about 10 minutes, and then we'll come back with a recipe for today, which is insanely awesome pork meatloaf. Um, so we'll go over that. Yeah, it's fun. 
we'll go over that when we come back. Uh, but here is uh, Zoya with the Pet Health segment. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. My name is Zoya, and today's topic is zoonotic diseases, or diseases that can be transmitted from animals to people. Nowadays, there are so many such scares and potential epidemics, some of them exaggerated, some manufactured or fabricated, and some of them justified. So I would like to share with you a short talk by Dr. Karen Becker about some zoonotic diseases that are quite real and are the ones that we can possibly get from our cats and dogs. Hopefully the information will be useful. Here it is. Hi, this is Dr. Karen Becker and today we're going to talk about zoonotic disease. Zoonotic disease is, are diseases that can be passed from animals to people or from people to animals. And there are six of them that I'd like to talk with you about today. The first disease that can be transmitted from people to animals or from animals to people, primarily, the six we're going to talk about today will be from uh, animals to people. So in essence, diseases you can catch from your dogs and cats, puppies and kittens that you need to be aware of. The first one is hookworm. Hookworm infestation, unfortunately, um, can be transmitted in two ways. Hookworms primarily, in fact, all six of these we're going to discuss, primarily can be transmitted fecal-orally. Now, for people, obviously, you don't think about the fact that we're not coprophagic, we don't consume feces. However, we do walk barefoot in soils, and we do uh, have soil exposure, and because wild animals or dogs and cats that are infected with these zoonotic diseases pass eggs or larvae into the, into the soil, the eggs of these parasites, be, can, can, which are microscopic, can be mixed in with the soil, so you don't see them, but you're still exposed. So it's important you recognize that with all six of these potential zoonotic diseases, that when we talk about fecal-oral contamination, it really is soil contamination. Now, dogs and cats, primarily dogs, do consume poop. So with hookworm infestation, it's important that you pick feces up to prevent your dogs from being able to consume infected feces of other animals that have shed hookworms in their stools. For puppies, puppies and kittens are also uh, open to acquiring hookworm infection, and actually they can get hookworm infection from consuming milk from mother. Mother's milk, if mom had hookworms, mom will be able to transmit hookworms to her babies through her milk. Now, hookworm most commonly for dogs, cats, puppies, and kittens is a fecal-oral contamination, which means they either eat feces or they eat dirt, or they just run through the dirt and then lick their paws and acquire hookworm eggs. People most commonly acquire hookworm infection actually through their skin. So hookworm larvae has the hookworm larvae have the strange ability to penetrate through people's skin and it typically forms a rash wherever the hookworm larvae penetrates. So most commonly people end up with rashes on their feet because that's where they're walking. They're walking barefoot in the sand or barefoot in the dirt or gardening barefoot and they can end up with a rash on their feet. Sometimes it affects hands. If people garden uh, without wearing gloves, you can also get hookworm skin infection, uh, which is a traveling rash that your doctor will be able to identify. Uh, for puppies and kittens, hookworm infection can be fatal because it can cause anemia, lethargy, uh, and weakness, as well as malnutrition. Dogs and cats, adult dogs and cats, oftentimes end up being thin, they have poor appetites, and they can have weight loss with hookworm infection. Second type of zoonotic disease I want you to be aware of are roundworms. And roundworms are large spaghetti-looking worms. 
Uh, it's very important that you know that just because you're not seeing large spaghetti-like worms in your dogs and cats' feces, it doesn't mean that they're not positive. By the time that your dog or cat throws up roundworms or is passing whole roundworms out of their stools, they are chuck full with thousands of worms. So don't bank on waiting to see any of these parasites. The only way that you can check for some of these roundworms or hookworm infections is to simply drop a stool sample off at your veterinarian. Roundworm infections are transmitted through your pets consuming infected feces. Roundworm infection can also be transmitted transplacentally, which means developing dogs and cats, uh, puppies and kittens in their mom's uterus can acquire roundworm infection while the mom is pregnant and then give birth to already positive puppies and kittens. Roundworm infection in people is most commonly acquired through the consumption of contaminated uh, uh, soil. So if you are gardening and you forget to wash off your vegetables, people can acquire some dirt that has eggs of roundworms, which again are microscopic, and you can end up acquiring infection that way. Roundworm infection in people, unfortunately, those roundworms know that people are not the specific direct host that they're interested in being, and so they end up wandering through the human body, raising all sorts of trouble. People can have organ inflammation, and actually in small children, roundworms can end up migrating through through the eyes of small children and roundworm larvae can be found by ophthalmologists in the back of many children's eyes. So it's important uh, for prevention that puppies be dewormed if they are roundworm positive. And so puppies and cats, in my opinion, you need to be checking the fecal uh, specimens of through, through your veterinarian at 6, 8, 10, and 12 weeks, you need to be checking a poop sample with your veterinarian if you have a puppy or kitten to make sure that your puppies and kittens are not roundworm positive because there is a lot of exposure for small children in your home through fecal contamination through a new puppy or kitten that comes into your life. Third type of zoonotic disease is toxoplasmosis, and any warm-blooded uh, vertebrate can acquire toxoplasmosis. However, toxoplasmosis infections primarily infect cats and people. Now, the people that are most at risk of acquiring toxoplasmosis are pregnant women and people that are immunosuppressed. So AIDS-positive patients uh, do run much more of a risk of acquiring a toxoplasmosis infection than healthy immuno or immunologically strong people. Likewise, children can have problems. Oftentimes, uh, cats don't have symptoms of toxoplasmosis, but toxoplasmosis can be acquired if cats hunt. So if you have outdoor kitties that are eating small prey, rabbits, or rodents, or uh, handling raw meat from animals that are toxoplasmosis positive. That's why many doctors recommend that pregnant women do not scoop cat litter boxes because if you have a toxoplasmosis positive kitty, he or she can be shedding toxoplasmosis in the stool. So if you do have a cat and if you're pregnant, it's important you wear gloves when you scoop the litter box and you also should not handle raw meat because raw meat is also another source of where toxoplasmosis, toxoplasmosis exposure can come in. If you feed your dogs a raw food diet, we recommend you freeze meat for three days, which will eliminate all potential toxoplasmosis in the tissues, making the meat safe and healthy for your pet to eat. Fifth infection that can be zoonotically transmitted, which means your pets can shed infection on you, is cryptosporidiosis. And cryptosporidiosis is a protozoan. It's a microscopic parasite. Most people just call it crypto because it's too hard to say cryptosporidiosis. Cryptosporidiosis loves water, and so although it's a fecal-oral contamination, uh, many children can become crypto-positive by swimming in infected swimming pools. Animals can transmit cryptosporidiosis by um, defecating in ponds and lakes, and people can pick it up that way. Dogs and cats, puppies and kittens can acquire crypto by drinking contaminated water or feces or animals that are positive.
The sixth and final zoonotic disease I want to talk to you about is Lyme's disease. Lyme's disease is a vector-borne disease, which means there's a vehicle for transmission that has to take place. The vehicle is the Exodes tick, also called deer tick, also called the black-legged tick. This particular deer tick can transmit the Lyme disease uh, organism, which is a spirochete, from uh, tick to dog or from tick to person. But dogs and people both can become infected with Lyme's disease. Lyme's disease can cause, uh, in its acute phase, fever, lethargy. People can acquire rashes. Dogs tend to become lame and they can run a fever. In the chronic phase, it affects both dogs and cats similarly, which is polyarthritis and an immune-mediated degenerative disease. So you can end up with kidney disease because of autoimmune disease secondary to chronic Lyme's infection in both dogs, cats, uh, less likely than dogs, and people. So how do you keep uh, yourself safe and your pet safe from these disease-carrying parasites? I recommend that you wash all your vegetables very well before you feed them to you or your dogs. If you garden, uh, you need to make sure you're wearing gardening gloves. It's important that you prevent your pets from going poop in sandboxes that your children play in. In fact, all wild animals will poop in sand, so you've got to keep playgrounds and sandboxes covered. It's important that you uh, wash your hands after you garden or after you've been walking through soil. And it's important that you practice good tick protection. So you need to do tick checks on both your kids, yourself, your dogs, and your cats. And if necessary, you need to use safe tick repellents for all of, uh, for all of your family, including your furry friends, to prevent tick attachment. Watch out for those goats. They might have some zoonotic diseases. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to say that what was explained in these audio is another thing that is not widely covered in the media. So the Zika virus can be a cover-up for that as well. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Definitely. I, you know, it's just something that you never really hear about. I guess the the most out of any of those mentioned that I would hear, you know, is probably Lyme's disease or toxoplasmosis, which I think is uh, toxoplasmosis, at least in the places I've seen and mentioned, has been one of those, like, novelty diseases. They're like, oh, the crazy cat lady's got toxoplasmosis, but it's obviously much more common than that. Mm-hmm. Well... Going right from gross fecal-born genetic diseases to our <laughs> recipe for the day. <laughs> yes, please. Uh, yeah. Today we have uh, insanely awesome pork meatloaf, which is the title of the recipe. This is uh, now I know I've, I've, I've kind of gotten into a rut of com- going from this book beyond bacon, but it's just it's great. Uh, so I'm going to do another one from this book. Um, so it is, you know, usually meatloaf is made with uh, ground beef, uh, but this is with ground pork and with some organ meats uh, if you have them, if you have access to them. So um, the difficulty level is basic, so this is pretty easy to make. Um, so the ingredients are two tablespoons of lard, um, one-half cup of yellow onions. I meant to say, if you don't have lard, you could also use butter in this case, um, but preferably use lard. Um, So one half cup of yellow onions diced into one half inch pieces, 
one half cup of celery diced into one half inch pieces. And the same with carrots, half cup diced into half inch pieces. So yellow onion, celery, and carrots. Uh, two pounds of ground pork. One half pound ground pork liver or pork kidney. Now that's something that would be a little bit more um, specific that you might have a hard time getting a hold of. So it is optional for the recipe, but if you have that, uh, put it in <clears throat> um, two eggs, uh, one half cup of uh, either almond flour or arrowroot uh, powder. That's a half cup. Uh, two teaspoons of fresh oregano, chopped. Two teaspoons of fresh parsley, chopped. Um, if you can handle uh, nightshades, the recipe calls for one teaspoon of paprika. Um, so that adds a, a certain amount of flavor, but you could also leave that out if you're not doing nightshades. Um, one teaspoon of salt, one half teaspoon of black pepper. So those are all the ingredients. Uh, so in a large skillet, melt the lard uh, or, or the butter over medium high heat and saute the onions, celery, and carrots for about eight minutes. Stir them around <clears throat> until the onions are translucent. So you basically just want to soften up the veggies before they go into the pork. So you get everything kind of softened up in the skillet, uh, set the skillet aside. Um, then in a large mixing bowl, combine the ground meat, eggs, uh, almond flour or arrowroot powder, oregano, parsley, paprika, salt, pepper, and the cooked vegetables uh, into uh, each other. Just mix them all together in a large bowl uh, as, as good as you can. And then press the mixture into a four by nine inch loaf pan. Um, now, with this, you can uh, take some extra butter or olive oil or whatever you have, lard, and or, or bacon grease, um, and you know grease the inside of the uh, loaf pan. That makes it a little easier to get the meatloaf out when you're done. <clears throat> uh, smooth the top, pack everything in well, and then uh, the uh, kind of insanely awesome part of the addition to this is if you take uh, you know, five to six slices of bacon, um, or as many as you want, really, but I would do about five to six, uh, and lay those over the top of the meatloaf um, and kind of tuck them in around the edges of the top in the pan. Um, then uh, bake at 350 degrees Fahrenheit for 60 to 70 minutes. And at that point, then it should be all cooked through. Um, and your bacon will, you know, the fat from the bacon will kind of leak down into the meatloaf um, and everything will mix together, and it's uh, it's very tasty. So that's mm. the insanely awesome pork meatloaf. Gorgeous. That sounds really good. I just wanted to say that I've I've made meatloaf a couple of times in uh, in the last little while um, with beef. Unfortunately, uh, well, I shouldn't say unfortunately, but um, with beef. Uh, but I'd love to try the pork. But one thing I'd say is that you can actually substitute pork rind flour. For um, the flour that's called for in that, like so, if, if you don't want to sure. do nuts like uh, almonds, um, or if you don't have access to arrowroot, or if you just happen to have some pork rind flour, it actually works really well on a meatloaf. So, awesome! Yeah, that's a great idea. Definitely, and that would be much, uh, obviously, much lower carbs. I think arrowroot is like what 20, 25 grams of carbs per cup or per half cup. Mm. I don't recall exactly. You have to look that up. So, yeah, if you, and if you're watching your carbs really closely, you know, to within, you know, a gram uh, kind of per day, if you're trying to stay below anywhere from 20 to 40 grams of carbs per day, then 
would definitely recommend using the, the pork rind flour instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's a great dish. You can also, um, you know, double up the recipe if you want leftovers or make a few of them and then, you know, wrap them up and freeze them. Uh, or you can mm-hmm. you can also take this solution and put it into, like, um, cupcake, into a cupcake pan and make little mm. meatloaf cupcakes. And that's like huh. a nice snack throughout the day that's easy to carry. That's a great that's idea. Awesome. That's right? a cool idea. Yeah. <laughs> and if you want to even get more fancy with it, use um, use cupcake uh, paper, you know, wraps, <laughs> and put them inside that. That way they're like, they're super easy to carry. So. Nice. Yeah. All right. Well, that's uh, <clears throat> that's our show for today. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Thanks to our chat participants uh, and for our, our listeners on the uh, on the calling line. We had somebody listening on the phone, um, which is nice. And, you know, it shows that people actually want to hear the uh, the show and get into the content. So that's great. We appreciate it. Um, be sure to stay tuned for the other two SOT Radio Network shows, The Truth Perspective, uh, tomorrow on Saturday at 2 p.m. Eastern U.S. time and uh, behind the headlines on Sunday at noon Eastern U.S. time. Um, so check those out in there on Blog Talk Radio currently, I think, right, this weekend, and then we're going to be transitioning soon uh, to a new uh, network, but we will keep you posted on the progress of that and, like, uh, when we're actually going to do the switchover for our show. Um, but for now, everything can be heard on Blog Talk Radio, as far as I understand. Uh, mm-hmm. And... Um, you can always check back to the SOT Radio Network page on Blog Talk Radio for updates. Um, so uh, thanks again, everybody. We will be back uh, next week with another topic. Um, you know, we're going to discuss over the weekend what we're doing, uh, but I, I believe uh, tentatively we're going to cover uh, water and, uh, you know, the, the basic things about water and also some of the more interesting esoteric things that we've been learning. So, Stay tuned for that. We'll see you next week. Bye, Bye. everybody. Bye, guys.